At the end of this book in my hands, Stephen, from the Inside Out, the author Susie Stead writes this. He taught me about being with brokenness and darkness. He taught me about friendship and faithfulness. He taught me how to be human. Perhaps most of all, he said, his life was a waste of time, but he lived it as if every particle of it mattered. The man, Susie identifies only as Stephen, not his real name, was afflicted by mental illness for most of his life and she met him through a social action group at the Anglican Church where her husband was the vicar. I'm Mike Waldridge and for this edition of Things Unseen, Susie Stead is with me to talk about the profound insights she feels she gained from Stephen, who died in 2018, and how the relationship influenced her own faith. Welcome, Susie. Uh, Paint a picture for us of Stephen, who he was, what kind of person he was, and why you wrote the book. When I met him, he was 45. I met him when he was still under section at a local psychiatric ward. He had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and later he was to be diagnosed with Asperger's. And he'd been on on and off section in, in, on mental wards, in mental health wards, um, for 25 years. He was, he was a bit taller than me. He was quite sparky. He was very intense. He was a smoker. And there was something really interesting. We had a shared politics with both you know, left wing and disappointed with Tony Blair at the time. And yes, there was something really, there was just something that caught me about him at the time. And why you came to write the book? Well, I met Stephen in uh, the year 2000, but it wasn't until 2012 that I decided to write this book. And it was partly because of this moment which struck me, and he may have said it before, but it really struck me. He just said to me very flatly, my life has been a complete and total waste of time. And I something shifted in me and I said, I'm going to write a book about you and I'm going to show you that it does matter. Tell us more about that, the circumstances of that first meeting with him back in, in May 2000. There was a group of us from the local church. We were part of a social action group and I think we'd done quite a lot of talking. So we thought, well, we better do something. And there was this, there was this local drop-in which provided support for people with mental health distress. So we thought, oh, we'll go along there. And so that's what I did and... It was in an evening and I just have a memory of going in with the others and then I went down, there was a room full of smokers. It, you used to be able to smoke inside in those days and um, and I just uh, yeah, picked him out to chat to. In the book you write of it as there were three or four of us do-gooders. Yes. <laughs> Is that how you really saw yourself? Where, where were you in your own life at this stage and in your experience of the Christian faith? I would say I was um, a fairly classic, evangelical, charismatic Christian, really. I might have moved a little bit. That's where I'd come from. I was had been incredibly inspired in my 20s by a woman called Jackie Pullinger. The, the British Protestant um, charismatic missionary who became very famous through her work and time in, in Hong Kong. Yes, she just went out there. She wanted to follow in Christ's path and... Um, worked amongst drug addicts and of course amongst there you have people with mental health issues and she just took the message she just said Jesus loves you and and she acted you know she offered her place for them to be and cared for them and um, so I was really really inspired by that action and I'd also been part of a church which slept the homeless so I really wanted I'm not sure if I exactly saw myself as a do-gooder but I did want to do good you know I wanted to make the world a better place um, and I wanted 
to see less suffering, I suppose. Um, and I did see the faith. I was part of the Christian faith. I saw Jesus as one who was with the outsider and healing the outsider. When you first met him, Stephen had already been in and out of mental institutions for many years, and we'll touch on some of those experiences and the impact they had on him as we as we go along. But I want to look at aspects of both of your lives that seem to have been important to understanding your friendship as it developed. Your father was a banker in the Far East. Stephen's father was a banker too, and his mother a teacher. His great-uncle suffered from schizophrenia. His grandmother killed herself. Your maternal grandfather had a nervous breakdown and your paternal grandmother also killed herself. How significant would you say are those parallels in your backgrounds? I think it really struck me when I was reflecting on that. It's not about them and us, it's just us. And I think as I went through this book, I became much more, and knowing Stephen and some of the stuff going on in my lives, that that he wasn't some other sort of person. Do you know what I mean? He, he wasn't some, I don't know, different type who was mentally ill and who was different from me, and that actually we had a lot of similarities. And how come it was that he turned out how he turned out and I, I, I turned out as I turned out? It helped you understand one another. Yes, I think so, and possibly something connected there. Um, And I feel I gave him a voice because I recorded our conversations and I transcribed some of the stuff he said. And when it got to the copy edit, I said to the copy editor, you're not allowed to touch his speech because that's his speech and that's how he says stuff. When did your parents split up? Um, 1970. 1970. How old are you then? I can't... 40, 50, 50. Oh, you very upset about that? It affected my whole life. I was 13 when my parents split up. That's right. And it affected my life too, yeah. Not nice. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It wasn't, wasn't great, but... He said something He said something to me at one point, you know more about me than anyone else in my life. But you found it difficult making friends with people when you were younger? Difficult, yes. Difficult. I managed to make quite a few in my early, late teens and early 20s. Well, I was about 20, I had several friends. 20, I had several friends. Um, later on in life, I had more friends. Mm-hmm. Most more friends. And now, now I'm falling out of the morning. Falling out of the morning. As soon as I'll be a very sad, lonely old man. My bed, he passes away, and I'll just pass away. I'll just disappear. I'll, I'll just... And were your friends... I'll just, just dissipate. I'll just dissipate into oblivion. Into oblivion. Into oblivion. And your friends that you met, were a lot of them Christians or was it a mix of some people? Some were Christians and some weren't. Mm-hmm. But you were kind of involved in being part of an evangelical church for how long? Late ages? ages? I mean, when did you get involved in the church? Were your parents particularly Christian? No. <laughs> Quite early on in the relationship with Stephen, you had a series of confrontations with him, didn't you? Uh, where he was obviously no longer content with just a coffee once yes. a week. <laughs> Much more than that, he was demanding of you and you you felt, as you said, trapped between self-preservation and, and not doing enough. I'm not Jesus, uh, in swearing for emphasis, you, yes. <laughs> you shouted at him on one occasion after he told you, if you were Jesus, you'd invite me in, and you didn't seem to be willing to invite him in on that particular occasion. Tell us more about that whole difficult balancing act. I mean, was, was Stephen, in fact, challenging you at 
all levels, and, and especially, as you've just suggested, when it, when it came to your faith? I think I had an idea of what I wanted to be, which is fairly idealistic. <laughs> I was in my late 30s, wasn't I, I think, when I met him. And I really wanted to be. I wanted to be Jesus for people. And then he was pushing me and pushing me, and I, and I realised I can't. I can't do this. And also I really relied on you know, the middle-class social norms, people who know that you don't try and push too much. No, you don't invite yourself in and you don't expect to ring people at any time of day or night. And, and so I don't need to be faced by that. So he was facing me with my own idealism and saying, OK, go on then. And, um, and it was really painful to wake up to honesty about the fact that I can't do this, which actually I think was hugely crucial, absolutely crucial. Around that time, I realised I'd no longer want to be good, I want to be real. And um, that was really, really important. And this being nice is not the real deal. There's a section in the book that you, you begin with these two quotes. There's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of mental health between care and control, um, to which you then add there's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of the church between love and judgment. So where were you finding yourself then and, and, and how was Stephen influencing that? So I suppose the key one there, I'm trying to, it would be around forgiveness. Yeah, loving and accepting people as they are, not saying, I suppose that's what I'm looking for, that often the church says that, but actually people then get judged. So some of this, for instance, is I saw myself as being selfish when actually I needed to look after myself. And my whole upbringing had been, you know, you must not be selfish, other people first. And you know, Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. And they don't, no, there's not that emphasis. One, this love is for myself and for others. And um, actually, the love goes on. It's not, it's not, oh, yes, Jesus has saved you, now behave. And, you know, now you must behave, now you must do this, now you must do that. And I just want to say here, I'm not saying, because I, I feel very strongly about justice, but I think this judgment that you are supposed to behave in a particular way, you know, oh, that's not very Christian of you. You mentioned forgiveness. Now, Stephen would often say to you, wouldn't he, with great irritation, that he people were asking him to forgive those that he thought had done great injustice to him. What what does that leave you uh, feeling about the whole issue of forgiveness and, and indeed his approach to it? Well, I think at the time it was really challenging um, when it came up because, you know, he had people telling him that if he didn't forgive those who'd hurt him, then he'd go to hell. And um, it just felt really disgusting to tell that to someone who's suffering. He has very serious allegations of abuse, which I believe, and he has not. Found, he never found justice, so it was a massive challenge there. And I, I just felt this is not what it's about: banging people over the head, telling them they have to forgive. I don't see that, and I think it really challenged me. In actually, we start with ourselves. What can we forgive? And also what needs justice. And for you, what's the alternative to forgiveness? Being honest, being saying, this is really, really painful. I hate this person. And it's in the Psalms, um, and I quoted some of the Psalms in the book, and Stephen agreed. You know, we are allowed, this is painful. Somebody has hurt me, there is no justice. And I, um, I just think we're, we're putting huge burdens on people and we're... Um, and not actually offering them the compassion they need. All along you seem to have had 
trouble placing your relationship with him. It was pastoral at first, if you want to call it that. But over the years, it then shifts into something else that you seem to have more difficulty describing. Why was that, do you think? It was part, I think it was partly because of this, this shift. There was partly the thing, as you say, I started off with, you know, it's like it's pastoral, you know, looking after this person, he's suffering. And then it was slightly resistant, OK, well, he's not going away, so let's keep contact. <laughs> and I think that it took me, it was the shift to recognise that I'm not just there reluctantly looking after someone but he is someone I care about and actually love. And I didn't really get that until right at the end because he annoyed me so much. And I was thinking, how do I, how come I love him when I'm feeling so irritated? <laughs> if he rang me, he was very unhappy. And if I went there to see him and take him out, it was hard work and he wasn't grateful. And, and yet there was something there. And I realise now that part of it is for me that I went. So seeing him as a friend... And family, I think I did. I think I felt in the end he was more, became more part of my family than, you know. Became more part of your family, but there comes this point where you move away, as you say, a considerable distance here to here to Oxford from the from the south coast, because your husband Tim is taking over a new church. Yeah. It sounds from the book, the way you phrase it there, as though you you thought you could at that point potentially leave. Stephen, well care, as well cared for as possible. And you appear to be preparing to ease yourself out of his life much more in the hope that he will become less dependent on you. Uh, it didn't happen. Frustrating, disappointing or simply inevitable? Yeah, I think I did feel he was, you know, he'd got a life together. He was outside the institution and I'd moved away. I didn't feel like I was doing a huge amount for him, really. I mean, you know, I was ringing him. He rang me once a week, every week. He did it for 18 years, pretty much, you know, and I did go and visit him. But I didn't, you know, I, I saw that I was just doing something quite small. And I think really the big something huge shifted in me when in the decision to write the book. Then something shifted. There was something decided, um, you know. But, um, yeah, no, I had thought this would finish. When after many other changes in his circumstances in in 2018 hmm. Stephen died hmm. what effect did that have on you it was um i was i was i didn't realize how much i you know i was crying i mean i i went i still remember because i went to the local swimming pools and i swam and i got out and i just had that sense you know i don't know if you know that when you just what is the point you know and i was just sitting in this swimming cubicle just sobbing something just came up in me and um it just it was the loss um in if someone had been there all this time and um yeah it was I hadn't expected it <laughs> I'm not terribly I mean I don't know my upbringing you know I'm not good with the whole grief thing and um but he got he got close to me I'd allowed him in you know I was just so grateful that I had been able to be with him before he died. You know, I wasn't there when he died. It was increasing illness that took him in the end, wasn't it? Even though he'd quite often suggested to you that he might take his own life. Yeah, yeah. And swore me to secrecy, you know, and um, <laughs> that I wasn't to tell anybody because he was so afraid of being sent, being sectioned. And he wasn't saying he wanted to die. He was saying, I'm suffering. 
please comfort me. And for some of the part of the time, I would try and do something or cheer him up or make him feel better. But actually, yeah. You called the book, Stephen, from the inside out. What, what did you mean by giving it that title? There were a couple of meanings. One was, um, it was Stephen, how he was inside the institution, which he was in for 25 years, and how he got out. But also Stephen, as I know him, and as he speaks of himself, from the inside out, not from the outside in, not from here's a mentally ill person. This is Stephen telling you his story. I'd also like to add, you know, this thing, Stephen from the inside out, it's obviously about Stephen, but it's also about me. And I found it really interesting, that sense that, you know, how I got out <laughs> of the church and maybe also something of what it's like uh, being me. Well, one thing you and your husband, Tim, did get out of was, was the church itself, out of the Church of England. And yeah. you moved into the teaching of and practice, of course, of, of mindfulness. Has it, has it supplanted the Christian faith? Christianity. I'm not sure supplant is the right word. I think I was already moving. Uh, really, I have a. I've always had great respect and love for Jesus, and I don't have. I'm not fond. I'm not sure I've ever been very fond of dogma, to be honest. And I don't. I'm not happy with the this exclusiveness. You know that only the Christian faith has it. I think I'm. I'm not happy with anybody saying only they have it. So I'm more interested in helping people find their own journey. Stop telling people what they should believe. I don't want people telling me what I believe or what I should believe. And I want uh, us to be able to find our way and be supported in finding our way. So I find the, the strictures and dogma of the church unhelpful. Did you tell Stephen about your decision to leave the Church of England? And, and if so, how did he take it? The time we decided that we were um, leaving was late 2017 and things were not good for him. He was very unwell through 2018 before he died and in hospital. So there really wasn't that kind of space for him to be able to take that on for us. Well, I was just going to ask, if, if you had never met Stephen, would the the course, this transition of your faith and indeed in many ways of, of your life, would it have been any different, do you think, without him? I think so. I, I feel like I came, I, I, I needed him as much as he needed me and I wanted someone that honest because Stephen couldn't be anything other than himself. I so value honesty and Stephen just wouldn't compromise that he couldn't and I I just re that was just mm, I just valued that above all and I think so then I it, somehow that helped me find my way Susie Stead thank you very much I'm Mike Waldridge and you've been listening to Things Unseen produced by Mike Lanchin for CTVC if you'd like to listen to any of our other podcasts, just search online for Things Unseen Podcasts. <laughs>